Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7 through 18, and it reads, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated as you greet uh, your neighbor. And that was too many, Gary. That was too many announcements. I lost interest halfway through, I'm going to be honest. They're clapping for my joke. I might want to preach. What's up, y'all? How are we doing? Glad you're here. My name's Chris. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. Um, if you're a guest, welcome. Um, let me, actually, we have another announcement. Oh, my gosh. Um, if, if you're a dude, uh, if you're a dude, since we got discluded from the gospel, doesn't come with a house key for us. So if you're, <laughs> that's the book they're doing. Okay. If you're a dude uh, at Riverstone, I want to invite you to come hang this spring um, at Black Mountain, North Carolina with me and a bunch of guys from the Southeast uh, Vineyard Churches. Uh, we'll be joining them in Black Mountain. Uh, it's such a cool little town. I got to experience it just a couple weeks ago. Um, it's March 8th through the 10th. Uh, the price is amazing right now. It's 125 bucks for a cool weekend, um, all inclusive basically. Um, it's gonna be a legit time. And as guys, we tend to do life isolated. Um, gentlemen, we do. Uh, we just tend to become crotchety old men that isolate ourselves and don't hang out with other dudes and forget how to love people, you know? Um, so I, I think some of you maybe in this room need to push back against becoming a crotchety old man. Um, and if that's you, I want to invite you to come hang with us. It'll be a good time, all right? So that's March 8th through 10th. You can register online. Second, if you helped with Alpha, thank you so much. It was amazing. All right, let's go. Um, not even going to explain that. All right, so uh, lastly, Josh, thank you for bringing the word last week, the way to communication. I Talking about the thing, yes, yes. Talking about the thing that I hate talking about, uh, which is money. Uh, who likes talking about money unless you have lots of it? Maybe you have a lot of it, right? Uh, so if you missed last week, you dodged that bullet. Good job. Except here's the problem. Um, I've been at this church five years, and I have never talked to you about money before. Five years I've been here, and I've never preached a sermon on money. Josh talked about two imbalances 
um, that Christians fall into when it comes to thinking about money. One is talking about money too much. So like prosperity type gospel, pass the bucket again type churches. Been to church like that? Super awkward um, and repulsive. Um, that's one error people fall into. And the other error is never talking about money and having like a black box in the back and shh, you know, no talk about it. It's awkward. And uh, I have without a doubt fallen into that second category. And you know what's really, really funny? We had ordered a black box the week before Josh spoke. <laughs> and, and we're still going to put it in because anyway. But um, so cards on the table <laughs> when you said it, I was like, ha, ha, ha. Just order that. Um, so cards on the table, I don't like talking about money. <laughs> My friend says pastors avoid it because it feels like a hat in hand routine, you know. Um, and, and if you grew up in the Bible Belt, there's just been so many icky, icky sermons about money like straight up manipulative. Have, has anyone ever felt manipulated in church to give money? Anyone? Let's just do it. Come on. Okay. So a fair majority of us have felt manipulated in church. I've heard money talked about in church in such a way that makes my skin crawl. I've heard pastors make promises about giving money that they have no business making and use scripture to portray God as some kind of genie in a bottle and they'll be held accountable. Mark my words. Sometimes it's just icky and I hate it. So I've seen that, and I've said, you know what? I'm just never going to talk about it. Just, you know. And then you hear headlines like this one that I just Googled and found one from last year. Executive pastor of First Emmanuel Baptist Church in Baton Rouge for 33 years illegally siphoned nearly 900000 from church-owned assets for his personal use. There's that. And then I'm positive the one time in five years I talk about money, we're going to have a guest. Who's a guest today? I knew, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I normally don't call guests out, but it, this just seems fitting today. And they're going to, and like, I'm sorry. All right, so attention off. Okay, back up here. Um, and I'm like, you know what? It's going to, you know, probably going to be someone that's like, I, church is a scam. Like, I knew it. I knew it. They just want my money, you know? Um, so I've just avoided it. I've just avoided it. So uh, before I go any further, I need to make something really clear. Look right here. I don't need your money. Okay, didn't expect a woo there, but it's fine, whatever. <laughs> I don't want your money. God has provided for me and my family over and abundantly. I was a photographer before this. I was making tons of cash. I can go back to doing that. I don't need your money. Number two, God does not need your money. God does not want your money. The idea that God needs your money is completely obliterated by the simple verse, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness is mine. Sucker. That's what I'm going to put in there. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Welcome to church. Uh, when, God, when God addresses money and possession and wealth in this world, he is interested in something else altogether. He's not concerned with his bank account. His concern is your flourishing. Plus, money's made up. It's a social construct. It's like green pieces of paper that we've all agreed is worth something. We call it doll hairs in my house. It's borderline absurd to think that God would need your money for anything, all right? Now, my problem as a teacher of the Bible is that he does address your relationship with money like a decent amount. And here's the thing. I don't mind saying hard things to you. Uh, I, I don't mind making you squirm in your seat if it's truth. 
Um, but I've not talked about this, not because it makes you uncomfortable. I'm generally fine with making you uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> it's because it makes me uncomfortable. So I've just not talked about it. And I just need to repent before you. Because as a part of your discipleship to Jesus, he has things to say about your relationship with money. Money can be an interesting development in our lives, can't it? See, you could come in here and I could challenge you in your character. I could challenge you in your sexual life. I could challenge you in Bible reading or community or relationships or worship. And for most part, we know that discipleship to Jesus includes those things and we expect that. But the second someone says discipleship to Jesus also has things to say about how you handle your money, we tense up and we put our hand in our wallet. And many Christians, I think myself included, have a kind of subconscious position towards money, which is like this. God, you can talk to me about my sexual life. You can talk to me about my devotional life. You can say you need to be more kind to people, but you cannot talk to me about my financial life. That's mine. Mine. I earned it. You don't have a right to that. I worked hard for that. It's mine. My own. My precious. <laughs> you know that one? Do you know that one? Hmm. It's from the Lord of the Rings, if you didn't know that one. Okay. <laughs> Someone's really confused right now. Um, and then we end up thinking really silly things like this. God, I'll give you my heart and I'll give you my life, but I won't give you my money. And I think you know how dishonest that statement is. As one pastor says, you want to see what a person really loves or what they really worship, just look at their checkbook. Unfortunately, that sentence is obsolete now because half of you have never held a checkbook. And so we have to say things like, if you want to know what a person loves, if you want to know what a person worships, look at their Google Pay account. So here we go. we got to talk about it. So personally, <laughs> here's my general position towards money. I like it. Um, I like the things you can buy with it. You can buy really cool things with money. You guys ever bought cool things with money? <laughs> like cool things, like cameras, headphones, snowboards, right? I like all that stuff, like a lot. I like those things together. If I could take pictures while snowboarding, while listening to high def bass, like it's, that's, that's just, I mean, that's heaven for me, all right? I like those things. My wife, like I have four pair of headphones. My wife like finds pairs and I'm like, oh no, she found another one. Um, <laughs> like I have an embarrassing amount of professional cameras, like embarrassing amount, I'm not even gonna tell you. I like all those things. I like to do those things. And newsflash, it takes money to do those things. All right, so my general position towards money is yes, please, I, I'll need that to live. Mark Rutland says he wants his people, his Christians, to, be, <laughs> uh, to make as much money as possible and to give as much money away as possible. And I can get into that. I think most of us are down with half of that equation at least, right, as Christians, right? <laughs> and so it's funny as a pastor when someone tells me like they got a raise or a new house, they're like, you know, just so we can help people. And I'm always like, really? <laughs> That's impressive. You're very altruistic. I typically don't follow up six months later to be like, hey, how much money have you given away? Because I don't like talking about money. But I, we like half that equation, right? Like, let's make as much money as possible. But Christians tend to either have a gap in their theology about money, or they just have plain bad theology when it comes about money. And Josh mentioned this. There are two ruts on the side of the road that we tend to fall. And I just want to start today by naming those ruts on the side of the road when it comes to our theology about money. And I just ran into this chart, and it was amazing. Let's throw it up here. We tend to either have a poverty theology or a prosperity theology. What are those? When you think about how God thinks about your money. So 
If you have a poverty theology, you think possessions are evil. You work, if you have a poverty theology, you work just to meet your basic needs. You can't have nice things as a Christian. If you have a poverty theology, godly people are poor. They're poor. If you're godly, you don't have money. Ungodly people are wealthy. You give because you have to give with poverty theology. And your spending is legalistic and guilty-laden. Can't spend money. Now, some of you just recognize some of that in your own heart. Now, the other side of this coin is the prosperity theology. So prosperity theology says uh, your possessions are a right. You deserve them. Prosperity theology says you work to become rich. Prosperity says godly people are wealthy. Ungodly people are poor. I give to get, and my spending is carefree and consumptive. So you might recognize some of these wings in your own ideas about money, and I would just like to point out this to you, okay? You may have a poverty or prosperity mindset of money. Now, there's a third way. Let's show us the third way. The third way that I want to introduce you today is called stewardship. And this is from Crown Financial. I think you might have seen it before. Oh, do we not have it? Stewardship, does that third thing not come undone? Wonderful. Massive point in the sermon. We're not going to have it. Awesome. All right. So it doesn't, doesn't unveil. Wonderful. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. The third was, and I don't have a copy of it up here. Uh, the third was stewardship. You're like, I'm never coming to this church again. Um, stewardship was, was a very helpful category that you will not see now. Can you, Dad, can you try to edit that? And Mike, could you go help him? We need it. Go edit that box so it, so it can move out. I'll keep going. We'll come back to it. That's right. We're a pretty good church. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> stewardship, I'm sweating now. Uh, stewardship was very helpful for me because it helps us identify um, things that we have gotten off balance at money. And then stewardship, this idea, presents it correctly. See if you can get it real quick for us, Mike. There's a box over it that was hiding it to be dramatic. You have to edit the slide probably. We're going to just sit here and wait in silence, guys. Should we, like, yeah, someone tell a joke. Uh, just kidding, just kidding. Don't, don't, don't do it, don't do it. No, no, Mike? Okay, hey, pull it up. Thank you. There we go, okay, thank you, all right. Okay, so here we go, we're back on course. Stewardship says this. Your possessions are a gift and a responsibility, okay? Stewardship says, I work, yeah, to serve Christ and to serve my neighbor. Stewardship does not talk about wealthy or unwealthy as what godly people are. Stewardship talks about faithful. Ungodly people aren't poor or rich, they are unfaithful. Uh, we give because we love God. We trust him. Thank you, Mike, for that. 
My spending is prayerful and responsible. Okay. So I like stewardship because it frames the whole discussion in a new way, doesn't it? What is a steward? Let's go back to Lord of the Rings. Remember, in the third movie, Boromir's father is the ruling steward king of Gondor, the White City. You with me? And perhaps the most, if you've seen the movies, perhaps the most provoking scene is when he's gorging himself on tomatoes while his army is being slaughtered because of his unwillingness to let go of his rule. He was in charge of the kingdom. He was a steward. He'd been given authority. He could do what was rightfully, what he wanted to do, what he chooses. He was the rightful king. But it was delegated authority. He was a steward. He was not ultimately in charge of all the things he had been entrusted with. And when Tolkien portrays him as unfaithful, it's because when the rightful king showed up, he said, no way. I own all this stuff. He was acting as if he had the total and full authority over all the possessions that he'd been entrusted with. And remember, he was stricken with terror and paranoia at the end, yelling, retreat, retreat, before you know, Gandalf knocks him out, which is like the most gratifying part of the whole movie. The, the biblical paradigm presented in Genesis 1 through 3 is that God is a God who delegates authority. God is a God who delegates authority. And me and you are like steward kings and queens over the little kingdoms of our lives. You've been entrusted to rule the earth. That's the picture that we get in Genesis on God's behalf. And that everything, everything has been given to us as a gift. Even your very life has been entrusted to you by God and what you are a steward of. This is hard for us. The idea that your life is not rightfully yours just flies in the face of modern thinking. But according to the Bible, the breath in your lungs is on loan to you. And if you're a steward and not the rightful owner, if that's the true orientation that we need to have towards life, well, then it changes everything. You can treat your own car however you want. You can hot box it. You can drift around every turn. You can blow out the speakers. It's yours. Treat it as you want. But if you're in my car, you better not touch my EQ, bro. I got that thing dialed in, man. Like, and those are new tires, so no drifting, all right? So you have a very different approach to possessions when it's not yours. And the story of the Bible is that your life has been given to you. And in the end, it's not ultimately your possession alone. And you have a very different approach to it, if that's the truth. See, if you aren't a gutter human, you treat other people's possessions with more care, right? More attention. Faithful stewards take better care of something because it's not theirs, right? The story of the Bible, of existence itself, is that it was an overflow of God's generous goodness, and you've been entrusted with everything you enjoy, entrusted with the earth, entrusted with wealth, with your bodies, with sex, with families, with jobs. And it's why the Bible can say really difficult things we like to ignore like this. Um, your life is not your own. Do you know the Bible says things like that? It's why the Bible can talk about life as a test. See, the idea of stewardship is that you've been entrusted with God's creation, with authority, possessions, uh, friendships, gifts, talents, all the earth. And one of the primary questions in the Bible is, will you be faithful with what you've been given? It's why at the end of all things, the saints want to hear one phrase. Good, good job, well done, good and faithful servant, right? So God seems to be aware of money specifically that it can exert sneaky dominance over your life. It's interesting, guys. It tends to be God's gifts 
that become substitutes for God. Let me say that one more time. It tends to be God's gifts that become substitutes for God in our life. Good things like sex. It's a good thing. Good things like your relationships, your wife, your husband, your job, good things. Those are the type of things that become substitutes for God. And you know how you know if it's a substitute for God? If it's the one thing you have to have at all costs. If it's the one thing that makes life worth living. Whatever that thing is for you, we're fringing on idolatry because you are now expecting from other things what only God can provide. And this is what we have to talk about. People can lose their morality, they can lose their marriage, they can sacrifice their children, they can go mad over getting more money. We've seen movies. People can lose all rationality when it comes to money and getting more of it. And almost, it's funny thing about money, almost no one seems to think money is a problem in their life unless they don't have enough of it, right? I don't know, if I've never met someone that's like, I've just got too much money. <laughs> I've never met that person. Uh, Tim Keller says... People are aware if we are guilty of lust or if we're guilty of gossip. Almost no one thinks they're guilty of greed. And it would be naive of us in a country such as our own, one of the wealthiest in the world, to think that how we think about money and possession is not some way imbalanced. Are we squirming yet? Apparently, 16 of the 36 parables of Jesus refer in some way to money or treasure and how to handle them. Sometimes he's comparing the kingdom of God to money. The kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field. Sometimes he's talking about being faithful, but he uses material wealth to get his point across a lot. Apparently it's a language that anyone can understand because we all know what money is and we all know what treasure is and we all value it. You see, oftentimes Jesus is looking for something you ultimately value. And oftentimes he uses money. And according to Jesus, wealth, money, and possession seem to be the number one substitute for God in our lives. It's why? Why is money such, a, such an easy substitute for God? Why? Let's think about it for a second together. If I asked you, if I asked you right now, how do you know you'll be able to eat tomorrow? I'm asking you. How do you know? Don't just call it out. I'm just rhetorically, okay? How do you know you will be able to eat tomorrow? Well, I've got money in the bank. And if not, I got a little friend called Visa. Maybe you've met him, right? If I said, how do you know you will be able to sleep safely tonight? You'd say, well, I've got a house and it has locks and a state-of-the-arm alarm system and cameras in every room and laser sight guns behind every toilet, right? <laughs> when we think of things that secure our safety and flourishing, when we think of things that secure our safety in our flourishing, we tend to think everything will be fine because I have money. And the Bible's gonna push back on that real hard with sobering realism. The Bible's gonna say things like, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The day of wrath in the Bible tends to be used in apocalyptic ways. Cosmic collapse. Think of earthquakes, volcanoes, tornadoes, floods, where your world collapses in on itself from uncontrollable forces. That's the day of wrath. And he's saying when that day comes, it doesn't matter how much money's in your bank account. I don't think a heart attack cares how much your trust fund's at. 
Don't get me wrong, like I lock my doors at night and I have an alarm system, all right? But I have these things in my house called windows. And anyone who's willing to throw caution to the wind and has a rock can get in my house. <laughs> You're like, awesome, thanks. Gonna sleep great tonight, Chris, right? <laughs> See, the things that we often point to that tell us and that convince us that we are secure, the Bible's gonna say, well, not so much. It's so realistic, it makes us uncomfortable. It's saying the safety of wealth is an illusion of safety. And in America, the illusion is really, really convincing. But it's an illusion, says the Bible. And you don't have to be a Christian to acknowledge that fact. It's just true. However, as a Christian, we can have a deep confidence that the one who keeps our life isn't threatened by a rush on the bank. We work, we produce, we have common sense, and we learn from the ant, yes, but we believe it is God who ultimately provides and sustains us. So this is my question to you. What do you think secures you in your life? What really sustains you? Who or what is your hope in that's gonna make everything okay? See, I think, y'all, it's us that make the big deal about money. Because when we talk about the things that secure us, we're often talking about money. We're often looking to money to ultimately provide and secure for us. And if that's your position, then you're, you're in this position of which you may think you can talk to me about sexuality, morality, relationships, but not about my money. And if that's your position, it's clear to me we are hitting on something that, become, that has become a substitute for God. See, if it's no big deal that God can address you having sex before marriage or addressing you being kind to others, and you see the wisdom in that, but the moment God says, yes, but it also matters what to do with your money, you think, who does he think he is, right? I mean, how will I make it? Do you want me to be a pauper, right? When your world, listen, stay with me. When your world feels like it's going to collapse, if you don't have that one thing, whatever that one thing is, we're talking about a substitute for God, Right? When Jesus directly talks about money, he seemed to be addressing this issue in our hearts, our relationship with money. He's not saying it's evil. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. He's saying it's so easy to trust in money. It's so easy to love money that it becomes God in your life. And it's also why Jesus can say things like, hey, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. He's not saying rich people don't go to heaven. If that's the case, it basically rules all of us out relatively as Americans. Like we're way wealthier than most of the world. If he's saying if you're rich, you can't go to heaven, well, we're all, you know. No, he's saying it's so easy with people with great wealth to get confused about who it is that really gives them life. It's so easy to confuse it in our minds, right? And although I did see this headline the other day, um, and so good news if you own a yacht, um, Joel Osteen has figured out a way to get a yacht through the eye of the needle, so that, sorry, I shouldn't have shown that. I shouldn't have shown that, all right. <clears throat> now, all right, get it, get it out, get it out of here, all right. Now, <laughs> um, that was mean of me, all right. I didn't make that, I just found that, all right. Um, now, it's inevitable, it's inevitable, guys. Stay with me. When you talk about, this is a little aside, and then we'll kind of start wrapping it up. It's inevitable that when you start talking about money at church, someone will say, well, that 10% thing's Old Testament. We are under law. And that's so true. Praise his name. We are under grace. <sighs> Praise the Lord. The law says 10%. Do you know what grace says? Can I show you the New Testament model? I think you're going to like the Old Testament model better. <laughs> now, 
Now the full number of those who believed were with one heart and soul, and no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own. What do you think they're getting connected to there? Maybe that God owns everything? But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. See, what we see in the New Testament is a radical, like crazy town, like you're an insane person to do what you're doing, generosity, right? So much so that they, per, they perceived none of their possessions as their own. We see in the New Testament, under the law of grace, the liquidation of house and land. You know that land we were going to retire on? We don't really need it. Let's sell it and give all of the money to so-and-so. Like, that's crazy, okay? That's crazy, all right? And this is apparently how grace impacts how you think about your possessions, this is apparently what the gospel does to the way we think about our life. And after you read it, you're like, yeah, 10% seems good to me. Let's stick with that, right? Nice round number, okay? So Jesus gets to the heart of it here. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, it's not just money, it's wealth, anything, possessions, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, huh, sounds like stewardship, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot Serve God and money. God doesn't want your money, man. He's trying to help you to see that you're worshiping something that by nature is not God. He's trying to help you see that you've, you've hitched yourself to something that in the end cannot secure you. He's after your flourishing. There's so much here. Let's just point out a few things before we land the plane. Notice the language of stewardship that I pointed out. Your life is not your own. It's been given to you as a gift. He said words like entrusted, Faithful, that which is another. And second, Jesus is very clear. Money is a kind of God that demands allegiance. And you cannot serve both God and money. Only one of them can provide for you. Which one will you look to? And if you want to know, if you're looking to money as a God, all you have to ask is, what is the suggestion of giving away? Do it in your heart. If I said right now, we have a family in need, they need 5K in medical bills, I want, one, I want five families to give 100K and let's all help them. What does that do to your heart? Do you immediately think, why is that on me? Why, I don't owe them anything. Why don't they get better jobs? Don't I have insurance? Like, how am I supposed to go to Paris next fall if I give them a thousand, right? Frappuccinos don't grow on trees, Chris, right? <laughs> good points, good points. But it might be pointing to a deep, deep unwillingness to part with the thing that you're really looking for for safety and security. It might be pointing to a deep, deep unwillingness to part with the thing you believe really makes life worth living. Right? And if so, we're talking about an idol. 
a false god in that serving money, you can no longer serve God. And the Bible goes as far as to say that when we seek refuge in money, we are seeking refuge in something that will ultimately destroy us. See, the man who would not make God his refuge but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction? What? The thing that we think protects us, God actually says when you love it, when it grows to unhealthy proportions and a proportion of dominance in your life, it can destroy you. There's something about money that the more you clutch it to your chest, the more you trust in it, the more it eats away at your life, according to the Bible. But there's one way to break the curse. There's one way to end the death clutch of money over some of your hearts, and it's to give it away. And listen, I'm not about to pass a basket, all right? That's not the point. The point is, if you can't give it away, it owns you. That's the point. So let me end with this. Be real honest with you, super honest, probably more honest than some of you are going to want. Giving my money away has probably been one of the greatest reluctancies of my Christian life. I've really preferred to separate my finances from my walk with God for most of my life, and I have never been a consistent giver for the majority of my life. When I came to this church, I felt the Lord confronting me about this. And I was like, dude, come on, I'm getting money from the church. I don't give it back to them. Like, that's dumb, right? And he was like, it's not about that. It's about the fact you don't trust me. I was like, okay, well, I want to trust you. So, okay. So listen, uh, this is what I know about church folk in the Bible Belt. I know some of you checked out 20 minutes ago, and you're back now because you feel the sermon winding down. And you're correct. It's about to wind down. Welcome back. Welcome back. Um, so this is what I know. Many of you will change nothing about your relationship with money, no matter what I say. And right now you're like, you know, I should probably check out a different church. That's fine. For some of us, we have such a death grip on our money, or rather, it has a death grip on us. You will not give it away, even if your life depended on it. And I just think some of you need to acknowledge that right now, that that's your position. And here's the thing, though. It's not just about money. Let me tell you what I mean, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, for some people... Listen, listen, stay with me, stay with me. For some people, it's not money that they think they need above all else and therefore can't give it away. It can be all sorts of things. Um, some of you can't be generous with blessing and affirming others because blessing and affirmation is the one thing you think you need above all things. You, you, you are desperate for praise you're desperate for affirmation. You're so emotionally needy that you can't, you can't spare love and affirmation towards other people. There's not enough to go around, you see? And you can't be generous with words of blessing to people. And you can't call out the gifts you see in other people because you need to hoard that to yourself. You need to hoard that energy and that emotional support and affirmation to yourself because there's not enough to go. Some people can't be generous with that, right? Some people are so emotionally needy, they can't do it. They clutch any good vibes, any affirmation to their stuff. It's because they don't think there's enough to go around. For some people, they, th they think they can't give away money because they can't afford it. And some people can't give away affirmation. You can be stingy with money. You can be stingy with words of affirmation. As a dad of young kids... Um, I can be so exhausted at the end of my day and I get home and I, there's not enough daddy to go around, okay? So daddy's on E, 
So there's not enough. So in that case, what is it we're talking about? We're talking about energy. We're talking about love, you know? And when I get home, I say, there's not enough for me to go around. I can't, there's, there's not enough. So I have to clutch any energy I have to myself, and I have to push everyone else away. And, and I'm, what I want to tell you, well, my point is this. My point is this. It is out of an anxiety of the lack of something that we cannot be generous with it, right? See, we aren't generous with ourselves. We aren't generous with our possessions, and yes, with our money, when we are anxious, in which reality comes from a lack of trust that God will take care of us. It's really a belief that we don't think God will pour his love into my heart anymore so I can't give it away to others. It's really a belief that we don't really believe God has forgiven me and therefore I cannot forgive that person. How dare you suggest that? See, it's a belief that God won't meet our needs, that we don't give and are generous with others. Selfishness, the inability to be generous, is most of the time rooted in a deep anxiety. Okay? And for most people, we're about to end. Sounds like monkeys are over there. What is happening? <laughs> One day, we're just going to imitate what we hear just to, like, mess them up. Anyway, so, all right, sorry. Stay back. Go back to the point. Okay. For most people, their relationship with money is not really marked by greed. It's marked by anxiety. It's marked by anxiety. For some of us, sure, it's straight up nasty, conspicuous consumption and greed of the ickiest kind. But for most people, the reason we treat our money how we do is about anxiety. You're anxious. You are fearful. And if that's you today, if money to you has been this thing that just casts a shadow over your life and anxiety and fear, it's just you mention it and you get, start sweating. Can I just read you what Jesus says about money? I'm not going to put it there. I just want to read it to you. I just want you to listen. If you are here today and anxiety around money is plaguing your life, can I just read this to you? Listen. This is what Jesus says to you. This is what Jesus says to your heart right now. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious about your life, can add a single hour span to his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies. Look at the flowers, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like the flowers of the field. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not so much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we will? For the Gentiles seek after these things. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But you, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, 
Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus, I want to pray over my friends right now.